Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, need some help improving your memory or your ability to memorize things? We get some tips from a five-time USA memory champion. Can you actually steal time from your employer and can you be held accountable for it? A recent BC case saw an employee who claimed wrongful dismissal instead be ordered to pay back time. We ask, what is the fine line when it comes to work time? Is your phone listening to you and showing you ads accordingly? We ask an expert to find out exactly what might be going on. We head to Kabul to learn about the impact of a Taliban edict banning women from working for international aid agencies in a country still in the throes of a massive humanitarian crisis. Aid groups have stopped work on the ground in Afghanistan, saying it's become practically and morally impossible to do so. What can be done to get the regime to change course? But first, how can a fraudster successfully sell someone's home without their consent or without them even knowing about it? And what needs to be done to better protect people from those kinds of scams? First up tonight, this is quite the story. I don't know if you've been following this at all, but fraudsters in Toronto have been posing as the owners of homes that don't belong to them, putting them on the market and trying to sell them. In one case, they were successful. There's two cases that we know of, thanks to reporting over the last little while, and Toronto police have been raising the alarm about one of them. Um, They're believed to be related. Here's what's happened. Toronto police say homeowners who were out of town on a business trip discovered that someone had impersonated them and sold their property without their consent. The new owners even took possession of that property. Now, police didn't provide much detail about this. They released photos of a couple, a man and a woman, wanted in connection with this case. And now there are reports today out of Toronto that there was a second case where the home of a 91-year-old man that was rented out after he'd gone into long-term care was also put up for sale without his or his family's consent. Luckily, that one was stopped before any sale went through, but there was bidding and so forth. I mean, it was it was in the process of being sold. Um, here's how one real estate expert, Juan Alfonso, describes to Global News what would have happened and why it's easier now since COVID rules saw people get away from in-person meetings. Somewhere along the way, uh, a person with access to the land or registry system, whether it's a lawyer or another person, transferred the title from the present homeowners to someone else illegally. Now you can do what is called DocuSign or electronic signing online. You can easily go into Photoshop, just copy a passport, change a picture here and there. The lawyer is going to accept them at face value. So... Where are the checks and balances not working here? What red flags can you look out for as a homeowner or a buyer, presumably? And if you're a homeowner, how can you protect yourself against something like this? Joining me now from Toronto is Varun Sriskanda. He's a realtor and housing policy advocate. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Well, this is, I mean, this is one of those stories where you scratch your head because you think, how could this possibly happen? But how is this being done, at least in these latest cases? Honestly, Ben, I'm not surprised. This has been happening for decades. Right. Situations where people's title are being stolen and people's houses are being sold without the homeowners even knowing, or where even mortgages are being taken out on the properties and the homeowners have no idea. So, I mean, it's quite easy to do. All they really do is just steal your identity, pretend to be you, and call a realtor. But one would think... Um, and I suppose when you put it that way, and you know anyone who's sold a home knows this, it is a pretty straightforward. I mean, there's a lot of faith that goes on in these in these transactions, but there's also verification. So, 
how how come these ones slip through the cracks? There is verification. A realtor is uh, supposed to uh, verify your identity when you're selling. So I'm supposed to ask you, Ben, if you wanted to sell your house with me, I need to ask you for legally, I'm only required to ask for one piece of government issued ID. Now, I don't think that's enough. If I only need to ask for one, that means whoever's doing the scam only needs to fake one ID. We need to make it harder for them. Let's make them fake three IDs. Plus, realtors should be vetting those documents. There's free tools and some paid services online that realtors can use to take those ID documents that they get from a potential client, run it through the system, and make sure it's a valid ID and make sure it even even belongs to a real person. Who is being targeted here? Because I understand there's sort of a, not, I wouldn't call it a profile, but there's certain kinds of um, homes that seem to appeal to those trying to pull these kinds of scams. Yeah, um, it's a lot easier to accomplish when you have access to the property, right? So when I'm in access, I mean long-term access. You need to be able to stay in this home for months uninterrupted by the real homeowners. That's why we saw in the situation recently, it was tenants who obtained the tenancy via fraudulent documents and then pretended the house was theirs. Once you're in the home, all you need to do is pretend you're the homeowner. So you get fake IDs. And uh, you call a realtor and you list a property for sale. Who's supposed to be watching out here? Because I imagine, yes, realtors should be paying attention too. But there's a lot of people involved in a real estate transaction from lawyers and so on. Uh, where do you think the checks and balances should be beefed up? You mentioned checking more, needing more identification. That wouldn't be a bad start, right? But what else could you be do, could be done? There needs to be checks and balances everywhere. Like it, This slipped through a lot of cracks. First of all, it should never have ended up on MLS the realtor should have made sure the IDs were correct. Once it got on MLS, the agents representing the buyers didn't do enough of a job to make sure these were the real sellers. Then it went to the lawyers and even the lawyers were duped and even they managed to transfer title. There were so many people who had their hands on this and had the ability to catch it or had the potential to catch it and they did not. Does that surprise you? I mean, I think, um, you know, there's so much money to be made in selling real estate. Uh, when homes come on the market, it's obviously something that uh, that attracts a lot of attention. I know the one uh, that didn't, the other story where, the whole, where they managed to stop it, I mean, they were getting bids at $700,000 over asking. No wonder, no wonder it's such a lucrative scam, right? Right. It, it is a very lucrative scam. And, and it's there's a lot of pot- potential there to make money. And unfortunately, there, there, there is a situation, there could be a possibility that, you know, professionals are helping these scammers scam and, and, and perform these scams. So like realtors and lawyers could be in on this. We don't know that. And it's a lot deeper than what we think. This has been going on for decades, Ben. We, you know, even 10 years ago, we saw situations where a home would get mortgages taken out on it, and the homeowner would only find out about it when the lender started power of sales and tried to take the house back for non-payment. It's been really easy to do this scam for a long time. I'm shocked that nobody's done anything for decades. Yeah, because I also understand, and this comes from just reading, you know, not necessarily about this kind of scam, but other scams, as you've mentioned, like mortgage fraud and so on. Part of the problem is that the penalties are pretty minimal compared to sort of other forms of very lucrative crimes. Yeah, the penalties are minimal. At the end of the day, these are are seen uh, more as white collar crimes, and uh, it it doesn't involve violence, and, and but it doesn't take into account that it could financially ruin people. 
right? So you may have title insurance, but the cost associated with fighting this and having to claim that title insurance and take your house back, not not uh, to mention the mental anguish to go with it, is excruciating. And it, it, it's, it's, it's hurting a lot of uh, people. And we only hear about uh, very few of the cases, I think. This is happening a lot more often than you think, but it's only a handful of cases that actually go to the media. Varun Siskanda is with us this half hour. He's a realtor and housing policy advocate in Toronto. We're talking about a few cases that have made a lot of headlines of late uh, involving uh, homes being sold without the owner's consent. These are obviously fraudsters posing as the home's owner uh, who do then go ahead and attempt to sell the place. They go, the house ends up on MLS, they get bids. Everything appears above the board except the people selling the house don't own it. Uh, which, of course, therein lies the issue here. We're trying to figure out how you can put an end to that. Uh, as Varun has pointed out earlier, this is not new. Uh, these sorts of scams have been going on for quite some time. One of the things that that surprised me about, about these ones, too, is I, I guess there are ways you can protect yourself. You mentioned title insurance earlier, but as an individual homeowner, I guess you just have to be on the lookout for this, right? Be aware that it happens. As an individual homeowner, you need to be very vigilant when you're renting out your home. You need to be really careful about who you are letting inside your house and who you are giving free access to your entire property for years on end. I am a landlord and I I leave the country for months on end, for years on end, we go on vacation, or I'm just not at my properties because they're, they're far away. It gives uh, could give someone the opportunity to pretend to be me and sell it, but you can't let that happen. You need to exercise proper care and control over your real estate. You need to be doing inspections. You need to be visiting your properties. And more importantly, you need to be carefully screening and vetting your tenants. There are a number of tools available online uh, that you can use to verify people's credit scores and ID documents. Everything can be verified online. You know, there's a number of steps you can take to make sure you are not victim. And as a home buyer as well, I mean, what should you be on? Now, this is obviously rare, but as a home buyer, one can imagine whomever bought that one home in Etobicoke that uh, police were talking about uh, a few weeks ago that was actually sold uh, illegally. Uh, the home buyer themselves would have been put in an awful position because suddenly they bought this and it and it's not theirs, right? Yeah, the home buyers, uh, that, that's a tough one. They had no idea. They went inside thinking they're just buying a normal home and, and you know, very hardworking people saved up the deposit. They get in there and find out that the seller isn't even who they claim to be. Uh, title insurance will step in. It'll make them whole. It'll give them the deposit back. Uh, usually I've seen situations where title insurance will pay for the hotel and they'll take the family out and they'll put them up until this is all sorted. And uh, title insurance companies obviously work uh, quick because they need to sort this out quickly to uh, one uh, to you know minimize their losses and their damages themselves. I think the agents representing the buyers can uh, take steps themselves. They can ask the seller's agent, "Hey, what steps have you taken to verify your client's identity?" You know, I've seen situations where real estate agents downtown Toronto are listing properties or handling sales for real estate outside of their jurisdiction. So if you're an agent downtown Toronto and you get a call from someone who wants to sell a property in Sudbury, red flags are up. And me representing a buyer, if I go in and I see that, I'm going to ask uh, the listing agent, hey, do you know these sellers? Have you worked with them in the past? I notice you're an agent from Toronto, but you're working out in Sudbury. 
these are uh, red flags. And also buyers can, uh, sometimes they have the opportunities to even meet the sellers. They interact in uh, negotiations. That's a great opportunity to catch mistakes that the fake seller will make. In one situation, the fake seller even uh, made a mistake with their own uh, name. Right. I saw that. I mean, I, I guess what this boils down to, and we saw this especially uh, over the past few years, maybe a little bit less now that the markets have cooled down a bit, but you know, we are making these huge and perhaps the most often the most important purchase of your life. And we're making these transactions in a way that we really wouldn't buy and sell much else, uh, you know, in terms of just how quickly they're done and how sometimes loosely they're done. You know, Ben, for the majority of Canadians, real estate is the biggest purchase, the largest purchase you will ever make in your lifetime. And it it is it's seen as the most secure uh, purchase. It's really sad that this has been allowed to continue this long. Uh, the only way that we're ever going to fix this is you need to make immediate legislative changes to make to force real estate agents and lawyers to properly screen their clients before stuff like this even happens, before houses get on MLS and before titles get changed. Well, one can only hope that uh, these latest stories, as you point out, it's not new, that these latest stories once again raise awareness about this. Yeah, yeah. and I really believe that this is going to lead to uh, more educational tools. The realtors now are going to be out there and they're going to be more vigilant. They're going to be looking at ID documents more carefully. There's a free tool online that you can use to verify ID documents and your driver's license. I've been in situations myself where I vet tenants on a regular basis. So I, I, I ran these documents through the system, the ministry system, and it's come up invalid, unfound. And I'm like, that 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 right there is the only red flag you need to never handle this client and yeah. to walk away from that deal. What do you do when you when that happens? I suppose you, you flag it, right? You tell them? You tell them, listen, I've run your ID. You <laughs> what is this? I, I flag it and I let them know and I give them an opportunity to provide me with real ID. Um, I, I, I usually tell them, hey, look, this isn't what I don't think this is what you intended to send me. <laughs> it, I usually never hear back from them, Ben. I, I usually get blocked or, or, or whatever it is. Um, but I, I always let them know that, hey, I caught it. Yeah. Uh, we have our networks of, of landlords and uh, realtors. I, I work with uh, small ownership landlords of Ontario, and they are extensively vetting tenants and dealing with situations where uh, tenants are, are gaining housing using fraudulent documents, fake credit scores, fake job letters. So we've become extra hyper aware of these documents, and we could spot them very easily. We can spot errors quite quite easily. Well, Varun Saskanda, it's been educational. Thank you so much for uh, for shedding some light on how this all works and how we can protect ourselves. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben, for having me. It is so easy to forget stuff these days, isn't it? I mean, we have so many passwords to remember, so many things we have to type in if you're online, if you're trying to do stuff. I, I it, you know, you just get swamped. I mean, my, you know, I have, I have apps on my phone for sports networks and streaming services. You have to remember all those as well. And then oftentimes you don't have to remember them for a bit, and then suddenly you do, and you forget them, so you have to reset them and. It's just all a bit of a hassle, isn't it? I always think of the irony that you have the world at your fingertips information-wise, and half the time you can't access parts of it because you just can't remember what your passwords are or what your PIN numbers are, for instance. Well, we live in an era, again, where all that information is so easy to find, but we kind of stand in our own way. How can you improve your ability to remember stuff? It is an age-old question, right? Um, 
one of the things I do is I write lists, you know, you sort of develop routines where you always put stuff in the same place, but that's pretty small fry stuff compared to what we're about to talk about. Um, there are actually memory athletes out there, people who train and compete to be able to bring their ability to memorize stuff to an elite level. And when I say elite, I mean elite, um, you know, 100 meter dash in less than 10 seconds kind of stuff for the brain. Take the deck of cards and memorizing the entire random order of one in less than 30 seconds or about a minute at most. Have a listen. Queen of clubs, nine of spades, six of clubs, seven of spades, three of hearts, uh, ace of hearts, two of clubs, uh, eight of hearts, four of clubs, two of spades, four of hearts, six of diamonds. Nelson Dellis, uh, he is the five-time USA memory champion, and he is able, as he's explaining in that video, there's actually some applause afterwards, which would have made it a little more enlightening if you'd heard it, but where he's taken a deck of 52 cards and then without looking at them has said what each one's going to be. He can do it backwards and forwards. Um, his other achievements, including memorizing 235 names in 15 minutes, that was a record, uh, and many, many more. There is a technique here. There are skills you need to perfect to allow your mind to turn long sequences of numbers or a deck of playing cards or a list of random words into something that your brain wants to remember or can remember and can sort so you can memorize it and then recall it later. And all of this can help you, of course, in your everyday life when it comes to memorizing other stuff. It is a really interesting way of approaching it. And all these memory uh, athletes, so to speak, tend to use the same kind of technique to do this that involves sort of visualization, journey. I'll let Nelson Dellis explain it. He is the five-time USA Memory Champion, author of Remember It and Memory Superpowers. He's also CEO of a, and founder of Climb for Memory, and he joins me now from upstate New York. Thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I guess when looking at your biography, one always thinks, oh, did someone tell him when he was young that he had a great memory and he should do this? Or is there a story behind this that's different? And there's a story behind this that's different. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely not the first thing you said. I don't think anybody growing up had ever said that about my memory. It was pretty average. I wouldn't say it was like horrible or anything, but it just was like nothing to write home about. I only got interested in memory after my grandmother was developing symptoms of Alzheimer's and eventually she passed away. And just going through that and kind of seeing that sparked my interest in the mind, memory, what you could do to improve it. If anything, I was curious about that. And lo and behold, there were these weird memory championships that took a hold of me. I, it's such memory is such a puzzling thing, isn't it? If you think about it, it's such a very interesting thing. And most of us, I guess, if you look at what a lot of people in the sort of memory athlete space do, it's amazing how little we train our brain. Yeah. I mean, when you, I, of course I've used mnemonics like in school, maybe a teacher might say, Hey, here's a little trick to remember this. And it would be funny or something. And you remember it. I can even think of songs my some of my teachers when I was very young taught me that you know gave me a certain bit of information like I still remember the Greek alphabet because uh, my second grade teacher sang it in such a way you know wow. yeah and I'm, we all have stories like this with certain things for whatever reason so memory is funny in that sense but when I first saw the memory championships and the things that people were doing 
I was just like, how is this human? How is, are these people just ordinary humans? Because that's what a lot of them would keep saying in interviews or the champion would say something at the end of the competition and he'd be like, ah, anybody can do this. I'd be like, what? Anybody? Really? Are you sure? Have you met me? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that's that's really what it is. It's these techniques that we're all capable of. Nobody's ever really taught us it because I guess in the modern day, it's memory isn't needed. That's kind of what's kind of thought, I guess. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, everything's so available to us that we sort of get lazy. It's a bit like being a couch potato for the brain, right? You don't <laughs> yeah. need to call on it too, too often. But some of the feats, and you and you mentioned them, are truly, some of your feats have been truly astounding. The amount of names one can remember in a short period of time, the amount of how quickly you can memorize a, a long number, for instance, or a deck of sure. cards. I mean, how quickly are have you been able to do that over the years? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because even my performance or, 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 or records, personal best, kind of pale in comparison to what is now the current, like it's always changing. You know, everybody's right. new competitors come in, they push the limits, they come up with new systems. They just have an incredible vigor to like push the sport. Like for example, when I joined the world of memory, uh, competitive memory in the U S the record for memorizing cards was about a minute and a half, 90 seconds, which is still amazing. I mean, you'd give yeah. a deck of cards to anybody on the street. You could probably do that to most of Manhattan talk to everybody, put them in line and ask them, hey, memorize this. You would not get a single one unless there was a memory champion there uh, yep. who could do it in five minutes. So when I heard that and and that was like the record I was trying to go for, it seemed so far away. But in a short amount of time, I was able to get there with technique and practice. And you know, my personal best to this day is still just a hair under 30 seconds. To memorize the sequence of an entire deck of yeah. cards, forwards Which is, and backwards, yeah, forwards and backwards. It is, yeah. it is, it is remarkable. I mean, yeah. you're a mountain and, climber too, right? So you know all about training. I'm a big fan of doing out of the ordinary training for really out of the ordinary things. So, yeah, I mean, what I do to prepare for mountain climbs, and I'm talking about big mountain climbs, is different. You know, it's for a completely different skill set, but it. In terms of mentality, it's quite similar to how I push my mind and training uh, for memory competitions. Yeah, Everest, right? <laughs> Speaking of Everest, yeah, yeah. Tall, or eight thousand meter peaks, yeah, yeah. That's about as tall as it gets. A lot of folks, uh, and I've heard you explain this in different forms, wonder how it is that you do do it. And if you read about yourself and other memory champions, it's it's an interesting technique because it's very visual. And it, and you're right. I've heard you explain it as sort of appealing to what the mind likes. The mind doesn't like memorizing sequences the mind likes a narrative and that's yep. how you do it yeah i mean we are i think as a species built to tell stories um that's who we are as a core you know and that's how we were able to survive all these thousands and thousands of years is by passing on stories we need to do it as much because like you said everything's at our fingertips but if you think about it we tell stories all the time and when someone tells a good story isn't it amazing how captive you become into that world how like you, it draws you in there's something about a good story which is why we love movies why we love books why we love songs with good lyrics right uh, or we listen to someone on stage tell an amazing story we can't move our eyes from them and that's just what our brains are wired to do so essentially all the memory techniques that we use you could argue is just a fancy storytelling technique, a lot more structured and organized than just telling a whimsical story. But essentially, it's that, you know, and what is a story, a good story, but, you know, painting pictures and using your imagination and describing things in a lot of detail, using all the senses, you know, so to immerse yourself as since you can't be there, right? 
the storyteller is there to make you feel like you were there, right? And so if you are your own storyteller um, and you're listening to that story in your mind and you do it the right way in a captive way, you're going to remember it, you know? And that's kind of what we're doing when we look at at a deck of cards or a string of numbers is it's a really captive story. That you tell yourself, right? I mean, I've heard yeah. you say there's two steps to it. There's a visualization, which we're talking about, and then there's storage, which of course you have to retrieve yeah. it. And that a lot of that involves images and a walk through a place you know well. And it was such, I mean, I tried it, obviously. I wasn't so good at it, but what an incredible technique. Yeah. So one step further from just thinking about it's a story is how do you organize say the different stories that you have for different things that you're memorizing. And so you need to have some kind of way to structure the information and and store it, right? It's a storage issue because oftentimes with memory, it's not so much you forgot. It's just, you couldn't find it in your mind. You know, you know it, it's on the tip of your tongue. If somebody were to kind of give you a clue, you'd be like, ah, yes. And then you may come all diarrhea out of your your mouth you know like it's just a matter of of recall right knowing where it is in your mind and you can't get it so that to me says okay well you're putting the information in there wrong it needs to be put in a way that is easier to find you know ancient civilizations um such as the greeks for example knew they had this technique and they're um famous for it which is the method of loci uh, also known as the memory palace or mind palace but basically you're envisioning some mental uh, representation of a physical space um, that you know well. Um, I guess back then they all had palaces, the people who were doing this. Yes. So it could it could be your apartment. It could be your, your studio apartment, right? It doesn't have to be a massive place, but any place, because our minds are really good at remembering uh, spatial information and layouts of things without much effort. To think of a place, you don't really want to have to memorize a whole new thing. It should be something that's kind of easy to think about. And then what you do is you imagine yourself in that space walking through it and you can layer around that place all the images or the the stories, you know, that represent the actual information. Yeah. When you want to come back and retrieve that information, all you got to do is think of the place, walk back through it. And if you did your job well, the information should still be there. I know it sounds simplistic, but if you were to take something as simple as, you know, a a 20 digit sequence. How do you how you then visualize little segments of it as certain things and then place them within that path and then walk around it to 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 refresh your memory as to what they were? Correct. The only hurdle there is well then how how do you come up with an image for all the numbers, right? Yeah, through for um, you know 1 2 3 4, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I have and then a lot of memory athletes do this. They have a system um, since you know what you're going to get, right? When you see a number, you know that there's only nine digits, zero through nine. There's not going to be a surprise digit you've never seen before. Right. Um, so you can create a system that represents different combinations. And you can get pretty intense on this. I mean, you can have a, a system that just each digit alone represents something. So you just have 10 different images preset that whenever you see that number, you know, you think of something else. So like eight Whenever you see an eight, instead of thinking of the symbol, the abstract symbol eight, you maybe think of uh, like a snowman, right? right. In Christmas time, because it looks like a snowman, right? But a lot of memory athletes will go a step further and and do every pair of numbers. So that's a hundred possibilities, right? Zero, zero, all the way to 99. Right. And then even further, you could do a three-digit system, which is a thousand images, which is uh, what I have. So when I see a number, no matter how big it is, I break it into chunks of, I'm, I'm simplifying this a bit, but chunks of three. And I turn them into the images that I know. It's like a language that I've learned. And those are the images that go in my memory palace. So it's a lot more memorable than just a bunch of random symbols, which are these, you know, AKA numbers. Right. It's remarkable. And then then you walk through it. 
Yeah. That, yeah. And then, it? and then I, so I place it, that's the memorization part. And then of course, later on, I want to say it or write it down or recall it in some fashion. And that's when I go back through it. I pick up the pieces. I pick up the images that I had left strewn about that location. It is remarkable. How do you apply that then to, I mean, when it comes to the us mere mortals <laughs> who may not have time to train as effectively as that, how could you use that in everyday life to try to just improve your ability to remember certain things like, I don't know, pin numbers, phone numbers, you know, the usual stuff. Although we have so much of it at our fingertips these days, it's good to keep, as you know, it's good to keep the brain working out. If we're just talking about numbers, there's different levels of how to encode the numbers into words or, or make other pictures. You don't have to get as complex as, as mine, but the whole memory palace idea, you know, coming up with a picture for whatever you're memorizing, think of it like an association, something that's uh, makes you think of in a funny, exaggerated way, and then placing it in memory palace. Anybody can do that. It doesn't really take much time, you know, and, and for the beginner who is curious, I would just suggest, you know, think of your house, start at your front door and imagine walking through it and choose 10 locations right? So like the entryway could be another, maybe off to the left is your living room. You know, there's a couch there. Maybe there's a, a TV set. You can use pieces of furniture, right? And just kind of make a little tour of your house until you've hit 10 things. You can do more, but 10 is a good place to start. And then find next time you go get a grocery list or just go ask someone for 10 random words and imagine those words or, or an image of those words, one at each location. You'll be surprised how easy it is to just suddenly memorize this list. And what's better is you have it by doing that, you'll have it forwards and backwards because the order of that list is now preserved by this natural pathway that you would imagine going through this place that you know. It's amazing. I mean, you must, since you began this, let's call it a journey 14, 15 years ago, almost now, it's yeah. it's remarkable what you must have found out about the power of the mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I never imagined I'd set out on this journey and I didn't expect to find the things that I found um, at first, you know, I was just curious about this world of memory techniques. I, I was a bit skeptical that someone like me, an average person, couldn't get in on that, so to speak. But, um, you know, here I am 15 years later, and I, I, I've i just learned so many things about the mind and the potential that we have. Remarkable. Do you still do you still do things, normal things like forget your keys and lose your wallet and all the things that we all do? <laughs> yeah, you should have my wife on the show because uh, she will tell you a whole other side. <laughs> <laughs> of me. You know, at the, at, at the core of everything in terms of memory, it's all focus. And uh, I will admit that sometimes I do not focus. So um, yeah. that's another problem. Don't we know that? Nelson Dallas, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeon, hmm. four seconds. What are you doing? Oh, you had said that you don't do anything personal during work time. So I'm just making sure. Oh, wait a minute, so you're gonna time me every time I yawn? That's absurd. Really? Oh, hey, look, Monkey knows how to use a stopwatch, everybody. He's ta- Personal conversation, 17 seconds. There is no way that that was- One second. <laughs> the office, Jim taping or timing Dwight uh, because Dwight claims that he never, ever wastes company time. Uh, but that has been, you know, obviously it's been the subject of humor and, you know, employees joke about it over the years. What do you do when no one's looking and so on and so forth? Um, but this could be kind of a serious matter. Don't forget uh, you are on company time. You're being paid for it. And perhaps, just perhaps, if you're not doing what you're saying you're doing or not doing what you're supposed to be doing, 
that you're in fact uh, stealing, like taking office supplies, perhaps stealing time. Um, that's sort of the basis of a case that's been talked about quite a bit over the last uh, little while here in BC. It's a Vancouver case or a BC case. An accountant here was working remotely for a firm when she was dismissed. Now, she um, there was a dispute. She felt that that was not a fair dismissal, that it was, in fact, an unfair dismissal. Uh, so she claimed that was done without cause and sued for $5,000 in damages and unpaid wages. Her former employer countered that the employee instead owed it money for stealing time, for time theft, more than 50 hours worth, about $1,500. It all played out in front of the BC Civil Resolution Tribunal, which found in favor of the employer in this one and found, in fact, that the employee, the fired employee, had been fired with cause um, and also had been taking the company's time, that they were right. Now, it all seems like pretty small stuff on the financial side, right? Uh, But if you look at the idea of time theft um, and also the reason the employer felt it had the evidence it needed, it all becomes pretty relevant to the modern workplace, especially if you're working remotely because they tracked her online activities during work hours, because they had a suspicion that she wasn't doing what she said she was doing. Joining us now to sort of put some clarity into this, as if you know, we're all employees, right? We all want to think we have a bit of freedom to do what we want at work, but what kind of freedoms do we have? And where is the line when it comes to work time? Sandy Chen is a Vancouver employment lawyer and a senior associate with Semfiru Tamurkin. Thank you so much for your time tonight, Sandy. Thanks for having me, Ben. This has been quite the talker, this case, right? I mean, I don't know if you've been hearing about it, but I think I read about it the other day and I've been hearing about it ever since. Uh, what did you make of it? Oh, I, I've, I've heard quite a bit about it. It is, uh, it is an interesting case. Um, whenever, and, and these, these cases are very uncommon when an employer, you know, sues an employee for time theft. Um, I thought it was interesting because it, it happened at the CRT which is is kind of the level below small claims court where people aren't represented, right? And that might have been a factor in the decision that neither party had neither party had lawyers. But um, it, it is a very important question, right? Like, where is the line between theft and kind of just you know one day you're on your computer and you're doing some personal stuff? Where's the line, right? And I think this case does shed some light. Um, it is a rare rarity that employers actually sue and actually succeed against, you know, ex-employees for this kind of stuff. Yeah, I could imagine here part of the issue was that they were already suspicious. And then um, there was there was the, the initial claim, I gather, was for was for uh, you know, being dismissed without just cause. So the ball was kind of thrown into their court when they came back with this with this claim of time theft. Yeah, yeah. And you see that fairly often, Ben. It's it, it, they're, they're usually responses to a lawsuit by the employee um, employers don't generally because maybe because of the um, time or the expense of legal fees they don't generally sue employees for um, time theft unless it's brought as a counterclaim against the employee um, in this case I think what tipped them off was um, that the claimant Miss Bessie she had docketed some hours on a file that you know the manager knew she wasn't working on and that kind of set them off in this investigation with this, uh, this this interesting software that they had for her. Yeah. Tell me about this software, Sandy, because um, we all knew that it was out there. I think all employees sort of secretly know that they could or, you know, they know um, intellectually they understand that 
maybe someone's watching their keystrokes, but we don't always we don't don't always think they are. But uh, this was a, a, um, a computer program put in place that actually monitored what kind of work was being done. Yeah, yeah, and, and there's a lot like it. I think this one's called Time Camp. Um, it's 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 basically well. First of all, I I think in the case it, it was it wasn't an issue that uh, Miss Bessie was told about the software. That that's the first issue. Like employers have to tell their employees if they're going to install something like this on their laptop. Oh, they do. Um, okay, and, right. So you need to know. So so th- exactly that number one, you need to know. You don't necessarily they don't necessarily have to get your consent, but you at least have to tell them. Um, and, and this this software, I guess automatically differentiated between personal and and work tasks um the 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 i think the the crux of the case though where miss bessie were, were i guess the tribunal member found against her was there was at one point she was given an opportunity to kind of explain the discrepancy and and, and i think miss bessie declined to take that opportunity to, to explain you know wh- where did these 50 hours come from right and i think she inferred from that that you know, this was a fraudulent scheme by her, right? And, and that time camp, it's obviously helped the employer in this case. Um, I think this, this accounting firm um, proved the time theft. So I, I guess it did prove invaluable to the employer and not so, not so good for the employee, unfortunately. It does raise an interesting question with so many people working remotely now, though. And I'm glad you brought it up because I didn't know that, I mean, I suspected that employers had to tell employees if they were installing and monitoring software but but do they <laughs> like would you have to know would they, would they have to tell you could it not just be an oversight because i'd imagine a lot of employers would want to keep a close eye on their employees if they're working remotely yeah yeah they, they do have to let you know um if they're tr- because the, the issue is if the employee uses that computer for personal purposes which i think in this case that it, that wasn't uh, at dispute that you know it, it wasn't disputed that Miss Bessie can use it for personal purposes. They're collecting personal information, right? Like if you're logging on to Facebook or any of your social media accounts, you know, if you're messaging family members, that's all personal information being collected by this software. Um, and at least in British Columbia, we have legislation protecting employees and their personal information. So, so they do have to let you know. They don't necessarily have to get your permission to install the software. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does raise, I mean, there's all, I guess in your shoes, there's all sorts of things that are coming up with this new shift towards a hybrid work system or people continuing to work remotely. Uh, There are lots of different issues that will come up when it comes to, you know, working at home with company equipment on company time. But in your, I mean, we've been talking about this for a few years, but I'm sure we're just, we're still ironing out what that all means as far as employment law is concerned. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think, I, I, by the way, I, I love that scene from The Office. Um, it, it's, yeah. it's kind of a good example. Well, you know, there's been quite a few cases that have gone before courts and tribunals about this issue of time theft. And where, where, where the cases seem to suggest, where the law seems to suggest is there, there's a difference between an employee wasting hours of the day, right? If you're sitting in an office and you're just kind of browsing, you know, social media or watching YouTube videos or whatever, um, that's not time theft. The, I, in this case, the way I read it, and, and it was interesting because it was, it was through written submission, so there was no oral hearing. Um, right. But when I read it, the, the, 
there's a requirement for the employer to actually prove you were fraudulent. There was some intent to actually steal that time. And so, you know, in this case, Ms. Bessie, you know, she obviously wasn't just sitting around. Um, she actually put in 50 hours that it seems, well, the court concluded that, or I should say the tribunal concluded that she never worked. Um, and so right. they inferred there was some intent of wrongdoing there, which separates it a lot from, from other cases. So I, I suppose in this case, if you if your boss thought you were at work, regardless of where you worked, you told them that you were at work that day and you you hadn't been anywhere near your computer, you'd gone off on a day trip somewhere for the whole day, come back, filed for those hours. Um, that that's that's time theft. Exactly. There's a difference between that and you know sitting at your desk and working an hour when um, you know for half for half of that time you were browsing the internet. Sandy Chen, employment lawyer with um, Samfiro Tamurkin, is with us this half hour. We're talking about a case in uh, Vancouver, in BC, about a woman who was uh, countersued by her employer during a fight over an unlawful dismissal claim for stealing time. Um, and we're just trying to figure out exactly what the line is when it comes to stealing time. Uh, Sandy, when you look at this case in general terms, what do you think uh, we should know about? I mean, this certainly obviously doesn't set precedent or anything, but when you look at some of the things that were looked at in this case, what do you think we should be aware of if we're working remotely, for instance, or if um, we think we may be stealing time? Well, I, I, I think the important, well, I, I want to try to put people at ease. It's the, the important takeaway, it's, it's very uncommon that this kind of stuff happens to employees. Um, it's, difficult to prove in a court of law by an employer um, and especially if you're working from home if there's this kind of software on your computer um, there's a lot of reasons why the software wouldn't track the work you're doing uh, I'm not sure what happened in this case but even if you're working from home a lot, some people's work aren't on their computer right it's paper and pen or they might be on a phone call with uh, you know a business related phone call um, so I, I don't think that this case, you know, as you said, Ben, it doesn't set too much precedential value. Um, this kind of stuff happens. It's kind of a pretty, it's an interesting case. It's unique. Um, and and I, like I said before, it's, it's interesting. They, they did it via written submissions, right? Which is just yeah. submitting a document of your position to the tribunal. No, nobody heard evidence uh, provided by Ms. Bessie or, or anybody from the, from the accounting firm. Um, and right. so I do think it's an anomaly. Um, I don't think there's too much cause for concern for employees um, right. based on this case. Still a reminder, though, that the time you're paid for is not only your time, right? I mean, you should know that. Uh, but when you're being paid to be somewhere, that's that's not your time and your time alone. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, on the other hand, um, the, I, I, I've seen at least one case where I think it, it came from Ontario, but you know, theft is actually, it's, well, as everybody knows, it's a criminal offense, right? Mm. I think there was one case in Ontario where the Crown actually charged an employee for time theft. And, wow. and they charged this person with, with theft over 5000 because this employee had, you know, allegedly stolen um, over 5000 bucks in, in, in time, right? And so there's, there's consequences of doing that. So I guess the lesson is just don't do it, right? Um, <laughs> There was a big story. Um, this happened years ago, but um, I, I think it was it was Safeway where one of their employees um, had stolen some cash from the till, and the consequence of that was 
there, there was a conviction, and, and the court actually ordered the employee to pay all the employer's investigation costs. Um, all of this is to say it's, it's rare, but when it happens, there's, there's, there's serious consequences, obviously, besides losing your job. Well, Sandy Chen, thank you so much for uh, for shedding some light on this case. It's been a big talker. It's good to get some clarity on exactly what it means and what is it what it doesn't. So we know this was a pretty this was a unique one, and uh, we'll uh, you know the the value of it was was more I suppose um, anecdotal than anything else. So thank you for that. Thanks, Ben. This always comes up during the holidays because. Somehow when you're around people that you know and so on, this, this conversation comes up. Have you ever, and I'm, I'm going to bet you have, have you ever been having a conversation about something pretty off topic, like not something, you know, not, not your usual stuff, but something a little off, a little off the beaten path. And all of a sudden you pick up your phone and there's an ad for it. There's an ad for it. You're like, you know, you just say, you know, back when I was seven, you know, I remember having this particular kind of snack and it was really good. And next thing you pick up your phone and, you know, you're getting ads for, for cakes and you're thinking, wait a second, how did that happen? Um, is your phone listening to you? I mean, that's the, I think everyone thinks they are, but is your phone actually listening to you or are there ways that you give away so much information about yourself online that the phone actually can guess what you're talking about in some ways, uh, or apps can. We'll get we'll get a technical view on this in a second. Mine certainly isn't. But I think we've all had those moments. So much so, and this goes back a while, but when Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Meta, um, appeared in front of Congress, he got asked that very question by Michigan uh, Senator Gary Peters. Here's, what, uh, here's how that went. Uh, yes or no, does Facebook use audio obtained from mobile devices to enrich personal information about its users? No. Good. The, uh, well, Senator, let, let, me be, let me be clear on this. I mean, so you're, you're talking about this um, conspiracy theory that gets passed around that we listen to what's going on on your microphone and use that for ads. Right. We don't do that. Conspiracy theory, no less. So what exactly is going on? Because those targeted ads do seem at times to be reading your mind or at least eavesdropping. No? Um, to help us with more, help us with this is Tom Keenan. He's a professor in the School of Architectural Architecture Planning and Landscape at the University of Calgary. He's also a cyber expert and author of the best-selling book, Techno Creep. But Tom, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. I'm sure you get asked this question because anyone who's seen your book wants to ask you this question. Uh, but, you know, it is uncanny sometimes what appears in front of you on social media when you've been talking about things. What do you think's going on? Well, I have actually changed my position on, you know, I give a lot of speeches, sign copies of the book and all that. And I, I used to say, oh, I don't think that's really happening. I've changed my mind. Now, let me explain. Even 10 years ago when I wrote Technocreep, I explained this. You look at a really nice Rolex watch on eBay or something, you're going to get it for your significant other's birthday, but, oh, it's $8,000, so maybe you don't buy it. And to drown your sorrows, you go to a completely different site like Facebook, and the ad for it is there. Now, right. even 10 years ago, I could explain how that happened because there are services like DoubleClick that sell the right to show you the ad in a kind of online auction. And you're not worth much. You're worth a small fraction of one penny. But another company puts up the ad for that very same watch. So I thought I had all explained. But with the phones, I thought, nah, it's probably just coincidence. 
Then I worked out how it could happen. And it's an interesting technological thing. Let's say you want an app or something, and you go to the App Store, iPhone Store, Google Play Store, and they want $3.99 for it. And you're cheap, so you don't want to pay $3.99. So you go to one of those pirate app stores. Well, you may get the app, but you may get more than you paid for, which is nothing usually, because there may be malware in it. And just like your Siri or your Alexa or whatever has wake words, they can put wake words in that malware app. So maybe it's a calculator or something, you know, something very innocent. But it's got words like plane ticket or whatever. So you say to your girlfriend, hey, let's go to Japan. And the phone brings up an ad for Japan, even though it's the first time you mentioned it. It's, it is remarkable. I mean, the old saying goes, if it's free, the product is you, right? <laughs> That's the, Absolutely. Well, we're seeing that with smart TVs now. They're getting so cheap. And I, I just came back from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and there's well, a lot of concern that why are those TVs getting so cheap? Because you are the product. They are watching you, tracking your behaviors, and selling it. And that's why you can buy a giant TV for $400. So Mark Zuckerberg mightn't be mightn't be lying when he's saying that um, that Facebook doesn't listen. It's highly plausible, but in some senses, you're saying that if you think your phone's a little too good at guessing what you've been talking about, or at least uh, th- that you're probably right. Technologically, your phone can always listen to you. It's got a microphone, and if you're using something like Siri or Alexa or Google Assistant, it has to be listening to you because how else would it hear its name to wake up? Now, what they tell us, for example, Amazon, I checked with them about Alexa. They said, well, we only record snippets of your conversation, listen to it, and if we don't hear the magic word, then we throw it away. And, you know, we can believe that, but let's say the CIA or CSIS or somebody, the RCMP, went to that company with a court order and said, hey, we want to listen to Ben's phone. There's pretty important national security concern here. I don't know what they would say, but they might turn over your conversation. So the possibility is certainly there technologically that you can be eavesdrop on. And, you know, there are people who actually make a point of turning their phones off if they want to say something confidential. Yeah, yeah, certainly if you're in certain countries where um, security services are, are known to eavesdrop a lot, <laughs> you do do that. <laughs> you do. When I, was, uh, when I was working in China, we used to often leave our phones behind uh, just because. What's interesting, though, is just how much information that we give away to the point that, you know, it, it's, it's not surprising that, um, that we get shown ads that feel awfully personal. A lot of the time, you know, and, and I think it's because we do give away so much about ourselves online. I and mean, what was that? You must know this study that for some reason, like a, an algorithm can figure, knows more about you than your wife does, right? About your yeah, likes and, and it, dislikes. It only needs a few data points and it can figure out who you are. As I said, at the Consumer Electronics Show, they had things like smart beds, a smart toilet that will do urinalysis. Well, that data all goes somewhere. And I spent some time with the guy who invented a sort of smart headband that helps you go to sleep. And I said, well, do you collect the data? And he said, well, yeah, we collect it to help you. I said, well, there's privacy issues there. And then I said, so could your headband actually influence my dreams? And he admitted it could. So here you have this biofeedback headband that's actually changing what you dream about. And, and you know, the, again, as you, as you pointed out, the information is, is, is really uh, the goldmine here, right? I mean, the product itself, selling the product is all great, but it's that feedback loop that it creates that seems to me to be the real goldmine for these companies. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's called, there's a book called Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, and she talks about your data exhaust, all this stuff like, uh, you know, just, you, you rent a car, okay? And if you're a millennial, you're going to pair your phone with the car's Bluetooth system. Well, guess what? When you leave, that information is still there. So the next person who rents the car, if they're a little bit malicious, can download all your contacts from the car. So I always clear out the phone, the GPS, and everything on a rental car because I don't want them to know where I've been. Yeah. I mean, do you ever go to an Airbnb and you realize the previous person there had left their, uh, hadn't signed out of Netflix, so you get to, or whatever, they have craves, so you get to watch something you don't usually watch. You know, uh, like I wouldn't admit to that, but of course, <laughs> and, you know, I I, I, I've actually logged people off in airline lounges, like they run for their flight and they leave their bank account logged, and I go, that's not a very good idea, I think I'll log them out. <laughs> No, no. I was. It was funny. I was looking back at um, at some of the things that you talked about in your book. One of the interesting ones was genetic genealogy because it all came. I mean, it came true to the sense that you know they managed to track down um, you know suspected suspects in in murder cases. But you sort of warned about genetic genealogy being used in lots of different ways. And here we are, ten years later. That's exactly what's happened. Everything I predicted in the book came true, except, you know, sometimes in much greater variety. So I thought, well, you need like a pretty big sample. You know, uh, what the cops often do is they'll give people uh, chewing gum to try to get their saliva. And then they'll offer them, hey, have some potato chips. And they have right. to spit out the gum and they get, oh, we got the gum now. Mm-hmm. But you don't need that anymore. There's something called touch DNA. You can just put a hat on. And if you're sweating at all, there's enough DNA in the sweat of the headband of the hat that they can do your DNA sequence from that. And that wasn't true 10 years ago when I wrote the book. So in principle, everything there is true, but it's even scarier. Tom Keenan is with us this half hour, uh, author of Techno Creep. We're talking about uh, does your phone listen to you and show you ads? You know, those uncanny moments where you could be talking about something fairly obscure. And next thing you know, there's an ad for it on your phone. Um, Tom thinks there are ways that could happen, not maybe as simple as we think it is, but or fear that it is, but there are ways that it could happen. And uh, he's just back from CES, the big consumer electronics show in Las Vegas, where uh, lots of different products seem to be able to mine us for information, which is then sold back to us in some ways, or they find they know an awful lot about us. Do you feel since you wrote the book uh, a decade ago, do you feel like I get the sense sometimes that we've sort of stopped worrying about privacy as much as we used to, that it's become a bit of a lost battle. A lot of people do. And I mean, there's some good reasons. Like I do online banking because I know that the bank has my back, right? That if something goes wrong with that, they'll probably take care of it. But, you know, there's a lot of things I don't want to do. I wouldn't do online banking like from an airport lounge. There's a couple of physical things. Like I go to a lot of hacker conferences and security conferences. They actually have little physical devices. So if you plug your phone in to charge it somewhere, it will make sure that it only charges and it doesn't actually transfer data. Uh, They have an unfortunate name. We call them uh, uh, USB condoms, but that's what they're for. But I'm going to give you a little science project. Let's say you want to solve this phone thing. Well, you need a phone headset that works, maybe, and Mm -hmm. uh, either a dog or a pair of scissors. So I solved it with the dog because the dog chewed the headset and chewed off the microphone. But you can do that with a pair of scissors, too. So now what you have is a headset that has no microphone. Plug that into your phone, and you'll look a little stupid walking around with it, but you're pretty well guaranteed that phone is not going to send any sound out. That's a, that's an elaborate way of doing it. I'll have to borrow a dog to, to get this done. Uh, what are some of the ways we could protect? I mean, it does feel like this comes up all the time, but it, it does feel like we just sort of, you know, even even 
just out of laziness, give away so much information about ourselves. How do you try to stay a little more anonymous uh, so you can, when you're, yeah. You can lie, I mean, or fib. Okay, so for example, if you want to get, like there's some free magazine maybe, and you have to do a health questionnaire. Well, you don't have to tell the truth. So, you know, if it says, do you have diabetes? I think yes, which I don't. And then underneath I check, I have gestational diabetes, which means I'm pregnant, which since I said I was male, you know, confuses them. And then they just throw the data away. So a little bit of fudging. Don't give out your real birth date. For heaven's sake, if your real birth date or even birth, you know, month and year and month and day is up on Facebook, get that off there because, you know, that's the kind of information that people can use to identify you. I always pity the New Year's baby, the kid born first after midnight on New Year's Day. For life, that child's birth date is a public piece of information. So hi, your birthday. Or have lots of birthdays. I get different stores wish me happy birthday every month. So there are ways of doing it, right? Just uh, and I, and I guess you know what I, I noticed that you you had been interviewed for an article a, a ways back about uh, one of those photo contests where you again it seemed like one of those sort of fishing expeditions where they were asking you essentially to put up information about yourself. You're always being encouraged to divulge more about yourself than you should or have to. Yeah, for example, I worked with my students on facial recognition, and I tell them, don't send your own photo. I happen to have a photo of myself, and it's kind of a cool one because it's taken at ABC News in New York, and we've got the Empire State Building on a monitor in back of me, right? And there's one face of me, and then there's a face on a monitor. And I say, look, send this one into facial recognition, see what it makes of it. And it usually underestimates my age, and it says that I have a five o'clock shadow and stuff like that. So fundamentally, don't even give out your picture if you can help it because your picture can be used to identify you it's pretty good technology now to turn your picture into your name and then we get your passport number and then we got you it is yeah i mean i guess you got a while we were talking about that earlier in the show we were talking about these latest these fraud cases in toronto where their people are fraudsters are selling people's homes out from underneath them which is um which again the same kind of stuff where they sort of identity theft right um when you look at some of the other privacy concerns, and this is something that, that I think about quite a bit, um, how about on the health side? You were just talking about being at CES and all these health-related products now. That feels like a slippery slope. I'm older now, but you know, when you give away so much information about your physical condition, it feels like it could be used against you at some point. Oh, absolutely. And all you have to do is Google WeVibe, W-E-V-I-B-E. I won't get too explicit, but it was a connected toy that people could use over a distance. And they actually were measuring how often you use this sex toy. Uh, they measure, measured internal temperatures and things like that. And they Jeez. actually lost a big privacy class action. Everybody who bought one of these things in the state of Michigan got $20,000. My wife said, why the hell didn't you go buy me one? <laughs> Jeez. But you have to watch out with the health stuff, right? Like even your, even your Apple Watch knows an awful lot about the kind of condition your condition is in. It knows way too much and knows your location. You probably have heard that the secret location of a U.S. military base was divulged by guys jogging around the perimeter of the base and logging their jogs on an app called Strava, and the enemy was right. able to figure out where the base was from that. So you are giving out so much information. One good thing to do is to have multiple identities. So if you just have one email address, it's time to create five or ten more and use them for different things. Yeah, you have to keep track of them, but... Uh, 
now you're, you know, we used to say don't give out your social insurance number. I would say your email address is probably a better identifier now. We can we can get your social insurance number, you know, from a database for five bucks on the dark web. But your email address is the thing that ties everything together. Tom Tom Keenan, luckily we have some, we have a memory expert coming up who can help us with all those different email addresses we now have to create to make sure our identity is protected. Thank you uh, so much for shedding some light on this. This was the big question over the holidays. Now I have a moderately intelligent answer I can provide. Thanks to you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> well, as you probably know, one of the world's largest humanitarian operations had been taking place in Afghanistan. About 20 million Afghans, about half the entire population, received some form of assistance in the first part of 2022. Um, And as of last month, the UN estimated that about 28 million people are in need, about two-thirds of the country, about 20 million facing an acute food crisis. Uh, International aid agencies have been the backbone of this for many, many, many years. When I was there, the times I was there, well, uh, the Canadian military was there, um, one of the things you always notice is that women made up a big part of uh, the humanitarian effort in Afghanistan, certainly a big part of the non-governmental organizations that were there. Well, not long before the holidays or right before the new year, the Taliban issued another edict. They've been slowly and steadily cracking down on women's rights as they came back to power, banning women from working for international aid organizations. And this is a huge problem because not only do they deliver vital services, most of the clientele that they serve, if that's the right word, are also women and children. The consequences of that decision by the Taliban regime have been catastrophic or could be catastrophic. Many uh, aid groups are trying to speak to the regime to see if they won't change course on this. One of them is the Norwegian Refugee Council. Um, Their secretary general has been in Kabul this week. Here he is. This is something he posted on social media from the snowy streets of the Afghan capital on Sunday. I've come to Kabul to fight for the right of our female colleagues to work. Without our female colleagues, we cannot work. We will not work. We are not able to provide for the women of Afghanistan. But we would also not be a principled employer if we agreed to this. That's Jan Egeland. He's Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. So here we are in the winter in Afghanistan, a tough time. We knew this was going to be a tough winter in the throes of yet of, you know, a furthering humanitarian crisis. And a lot of the aid groups that do a lot of vital life-saving work in the country are not working because of this edict and what can be done about it. Joining us with more on this now from Kabul is Neil Turner. He's country director for Afghanistan for the Norwegian Refugee Council. Uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. So you've had your Secretary General there this week. I know that he's spoken to people. I gather he was grounded by some bad weather, not able to travel as much as he wanted to. But what was the message he was there to deliver, and is it being heard? Well, the message we're delivering is that for the moment, we have to pause our operations because we cannot work, as you said, without our female employees. They are essential to enable us to access women. And there are principles involved, but there's also the practicality that to assist the 800,000 people that Norwegian Refugee Council is assisting, we have to have women working with us, and we will not work with only male staff providing assistance to the male population. Uh, It's a severe crisis. 
and we have to have another decree from the authorities which clarifies this situation so that we can continue working. And that's what our Secretary General has been asking from the Taliban leaders. There was a hint of optimism in uh, in his social media post on Sunday, just a hint, a very faint one. Um, do you get the sense that there may be any turning here? Well, unfortunately, Jan Egland was unable uh, to travel to Kandahar yesterday. Uh, instead of uh, his travel, which was prevented by uh, the cold, bad weather that we're experiencing here, we are uh, presenting a, a letter to the uh, authorities in, in Kandahar uh, with the message that this new decree has to be made so that we can continue working. Uh, at the same time, um, there are some glimmers of hope in the sense that some of the um, sectoral ministries in Kabul uh, have said that, for example, in health and education, uh, there is an exemption uh, for female uh, staff working in, in, the, in these sectors. Uh, we have to be very careful with this because we have to make sure that not only do we have uh, the frontline workers, but we also have to have the office uh, back, uh, background workers uh, in logistics and finance and so on. They also have to uh, be exempt. Females have to work in these areas so that we can deliver the programs effectively. So in education, it's not just good enough for teachers uh, to be exempt from this ban, but we also have to have the whole administrative structure behind them uh, and have an exemption on, on females working in these areas as well. So we're working through that, and we are hopeful that we will be able to start some of our work soon, but I would reiterate, we will only do this if we have our female staff colleagues working with us. And the impact on your female staff, I mean, I saw some photos of your Secretary General meeting with some of the female staff that are, I gather, not working now uh, or not able to work. Um, the impact on them, and, and this came just a few days after uh, university education was banned as well. I mean, the impact on them must be indescribable uh, because oftentimes they're, you know, they're providing support to their families as well. I know, and I, I know that's they're probably still being paid, but just the whole ability, the whole idea of their work being taken away from them would be detrimental. Yes, Jan and I met with uh, the representatives of our female staff. Uh, it was quite an emotional meeting. Uh, they were describing to us the shock that they felt of this further egregious act by the Taliban authorities. And they are uh, often the sole breadwinners of their families, and not only their families, but their extended families, because we have extremely high unemployment and an economic crisis in Afghanistan. And uh, one, of my, one of the female staff told me that her daughter, uh, who is nine years old, was asking her, what am I going to do when I finish my primary school? How did you get a job, mum, in um, NRC? And the answer was, well, I was able to go on to secondary education. I was able to go on to university, and I got my job with uh, NRC. But the girl 
the young girl is going to have her education stop at the end of her primary years. And of course, these are devastating conversations to have with your with your with your children. Uh, it's just awful. Yeah, I mean, way back when, when we were, you know, when 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 Canada was had soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan, we were, of course, many of us were there, and we saw those girls getting their education. Like that was part of the, that was one of the, the the highlights of 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 what Canada was attempting to do there, at least on paper, was try to get uh, to improve girls' education. So we'd often go to girls' schools to see them learning and the the passion for learning, the passion for work. I mean, so many of the organizations we would see. You know, the women form the backbone of those of those organizations, the, of, you know, the staffing of those organizations. I can't imagine the country even functioning without them, uh, no matter what the Taliban would like to see happen here. Um, in the short term, the consequences, I mean, it's winter. You've been talking about, we saw the images from your secretary general. The snow is falling in Kabul. I mean, we're heading into a really tough time. The immediate consequences may be dire if so many of your organizations can't be helping. It's absolutely dire. We we have uh, 24 million people in extreme need uh, of that. Probably 6 million are on the, the brink of extreme food insecurity. Uh, in layman's terms, that means famine. Uh, the other sectors which are affected are, for example, uh, water, where almost 13 million people are in danger of not having access to clean water. These are these are extreme. Uh, figures. Uh, this is a, a very difficult um, situation, uh, and we're having to balance uh, the need to be principled about the way that we work. And again, practically, uh, we simply cannot deliver the programs that we want to deliver uh, to women and children unless we have um, female staff working with us. And, and this is um, a cultural thing here. Um, men cannot uh, often go to um, uh, the houses of women. We need our women staff to do assessments, uh, to deliver assistance to women. So it's absolutely essential that we get this uh, situation turned around. Neil Turner is with us this half hour from Kabul. He's country director for Afghanistan for the Norwegian Refugee Council. We've been talking about an edict that the um, Afghan government, the Taliban regime, um, put forth before Christmas, uh, banning women from working for international aid organizations and the incredible impact that that has had, not just on the work on the ground, but also the fact that the work is not being done. Uh, Neil, what can the international community, I'm sure you talked all your your counterparts on the ground about uh, the impact of this. What can we be doing more? What more can we do to try to force the Taliban's hand here? Is there anything that we can do? I think there are two things. Um, the first is that we need um, donor support uh, to continue our operations and, and to restart our operations where we can uh, with um, female staff uh, and some understanding from them that we need to uh, continue uh, to pay our female workers, obviously. Um, and the other thing is uh, any states, uh, particularly Islamic states, that, that have some influence over the Taliban, for them to join uh, and, and to get through to the Taliban leadership, that this uh, is uh, not something which is in line either with uh, Islamic values or, or with uh, Afghan cultural values, and that women have to be able to not only work, but uh, return to education. Uh, 
Uh, as you said, the, the gains uh, over the last 20 years in uh, girls' education in Afghanistan have been really quite remarkable. And now that's all in doubt. And we hope that sense will prevail and that anybody with influence uh, in Afghanistan will realize that this is something that needs to be changed. And between now and then, I suppose your hands are tied, right? There's simply, there's no way you can do the work and, and, and there's no way you can do the work in good conscience. And, and that's a really horrific position to find oneself in when there are so many people in need. It's a difficult dilemma, uh, but uh, we are uh, hopeful that in certain sectors we can um, start working in principled way with our uh, female staff. And there may be areas of the country uh, where the authorities uh, will allow us to start working. And we're engaging with um, any uh, authorities uh, on a geographical basis or on a sectoral basis to make sure that, they, uh, that we can go ahead with our, with our work, but we'll only do that with our women's staff. And we're already seeing some uh, possibilities here. Um, but it's extremely difficult because even if we do start working with some kind of um, exemption or authority, uh, even on a local basis, we also need to look at the safety of our female staff because that, um, that uh, permission to proceed needs to actually be accepted on the ground uh, by um, the security uh, apparatus. Uh, and so on, so that our, our female staff are, are not harassed. It's, it's quite a difficult situation, but we are hopeful that in certain places, in certain areas with certain services, uh, for example, in education, we will be able to, to start in a, in, a, in a safe way for our female staff. But then overall, the real solution for this is for a second decree to come from the high leadership of the Taliban which um, reverses or, or clarifies why, um, um, how we can work. One of the um, um, reasons given in the decree um, that, we sh that we should not work with females is that uh, we were not observing the guidelines in relation to um, um, uh, correct uh, Islamic dress, the, the right. wearing of the hijab by our, by our by our female staff. That's simply not true. Uh, in our offices uh, for, a, for the whole of last year, uh, that we have been observing these um, guidelines on, on dress, uh, guidelines on the separation of men and women uh, in our offices. Um, and we, we've been living uh, with that, with those conditions, with those guidelines, and our, our staff have been respecting them. So if we can get a second decree which maybe clarifies what the problem is, because we have no instance where we, we have, have not been observing these guidelines. If we can get that, uh, and we're hopeful of getting that, then we can fully proceed with uh, everything that, that we're doing. And we're absolutely ready to do that as soon as possible. Neil, I certainly hope that's what happens. Uh, Neil Turner, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>